Welcome back, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us. I'm Telly. And I'm Jess. And this is Cozy Fall Coffee Date. Okay, we thought we started recording. (laughs) We did not. So here goes round two. You know what? Second time's the charm. Yeah, that's the saying, right? Yeah. Anyway, so (laughs) finally back for our second full episode. Yeah. It's been a long time coming, it feels like. Yeah. I've missed it. I have too. Yeah. I am so ready and we have a lot to talk about. So we're going to jump right in. First things first, we're going to update you guys on our fall rambles. Oh man, did you did you check some stuff off of your fall rambles? List? A few things. Yeah, what did you do? So a friend invited us to go out to hot springs. Oh. Which was something I was super excited about because I've been to a hot springs once, but not in Oregon. So I've never experienced any of the Oregon hot springs. And oh man. It's like the perfect fall ramble. So That's awesome. It happened to be a really cold day, like one of the first cold days of the fall. And we drove out. It was a bit of a drive up into the mountains and then did a little hike. We brought hot cider and then we soaked in the hot springs and it was beautiful. That sounds really, magical. I really enjoyed it. So other than that, I didn't do anything that was the most adventurous. I made some chicken noodle soup first time this fall, some pumpkin muffins, which nice. me and Levi intended to share, but we ate them all ourselves. <laughs> Over the course of a, of a few days. I'm not going to say how long it took us, but... You know what? That feels like a very fall activity, though, is to make a whole batch of something and eat it all yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how about you? All right. Well, I did a couple things. I've gone on several scenic drives to see some really beautiful fall foliage. Um, we drove to Waldport, and along the way, there was gorgeous trees. In the town I live in, in Newburgh, there's... The trees are all changing these just crazy vibrant colors so yeah you're taking advantage of it yeah so i i drove around i got to see beautiful stuff i got to go to the coast that's a pretty great fall activity in oregon it it really is actually and um, any time of year but oh yeah it's nice out there in the fall i also frolicked quite a bit (laughs) once the leaves did actually start falling and changing i would just hop out of the car and just run around and frolic like i was like five years old and it was amazing (laughs) Is that something you normally do, or were you being more intentional about it? I was being intentional about it. Um, I also had some pumpkin chili, mm. which I thought was kind of a fascinating idea to put pumpkin in your Doesn't chili. Sound great to me, but I could be way off base. I was nervous about it, um, but I tried it. It had just a little bit of pumpkin. It wasn't a lot. It was just a little bit of the pumpkin, and it wasn't sweet at all obviously because it's chili but they also put like a golden ale in the chili as well it was really good well that covers our fall rambles yeah feel free to share on the post in the comments what you guys did this week if you that's the other thing i think we're finally gonna post our fall rambles list this week draw inspiration from our list and then let us know which ones you do and what you're doing to have a little fun out there. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Ramble with us. Okay, so we are going to take a quick break and then we will get right into the main topic for this week, which is a very exciting deep dive all about comfort. And Telly was researching this and took it kind of an interesting direction. I think you guys are going to find it 
very intriguing. So more of that after the break. All right, Telly, the time has come. Are you ready? I'm ready. For your deep dive? So I did a deep dive on human comfort and mm-hmm. how cozy affects the brain and what even is human comfort. So, Very interesting. Yeah. My, my inspiration on the subject was noticing the culture on fall to be really cozy and restful. And I wanted to know, why is this so appealing to us? Why... Is that overall the consensus of what we do? I did what every person our age would do is I googled human comfort into the internet and saw what would happen. <laughs> and you at typed first, the words into the Google machine. Yeah, I'm like, dear Google, what is human comfort? And at first, I got a very literal explanation on human comfort, um, on how to design thermal systems to accommodate that. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Please tell me that's not what the whole deep dive is about. You know, I did find parts of that interesting, but once I realized that, no, that's not human comfort. Um, But it is interesting. I did not realize how much went in to designing buildings or where people live, depending on temperature. So human comfort, there is a physical aspect to human comfort. For sure. And temperature is a big deal for us. And this becomes noteworthy later. Yeah. Okay. But we when, like to be in the temperature range of about 22 Celsius to 27 Celsius, which is about 71 to 76 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperature does matter a lot for our comfort. Yeah. So when you told me you were doing this deep dive, that's what I thought it was going to be all about was like comfortable clothes and being cozy. But the way you, the direction you went just from oh. the bit you've told me is so much more intriguing than that. So. Oh, no, that's not how my brain works. <laughs> I'm like, how far can we take this? So I I found a quote here that says, comfort can be defined as a state of physical ease or relaxation and freedom from distress. Hmm. Moving forward, I got into the human body and thermal comfort because, of course, I did. And I found a really interesting quote here talking about how the building blocks of living organisms are cells which resemble miniature factories performing various functions necessary for the survival of organisms. So the body contains about 100 trillion cells with an average diameter. I won't go into the diameter, but in a typical cell, thousands of chemicals. So I got into a bit of the weeds on that one, and um, I'm not going to bore everyone with talk about cellular levels of stuff. I did get down to the cellular level, but really, we like to be comfortable with a temperate type of surrounding. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll back out of that carefully <laughs> before our listeners click off or fall asleep. <laughs> so that, we have a good explanation on physical comfort, but that's obviously not enough to explain our draw to an autumn cozy culture. That's not it. That's not all of it. So I move on to the mental and psychological comfort. And ask the question, what is the relationship between the human brain and comfort? So I find a lot of things online where it asks, what is the human desire for comfort? And I have this one quote, we all have the need for comfort, the warm feeling of contentment as we snuggle down and forget the cares that stress us. Basic comfort includes warmth, shelter, and food, like we talked about. 
Social comforts include company, physical contact, and sympathy. And so how does this affect our brain? Um, I also found, the, I mean, we could get down to the science of how chemicals in our brain will react to things and how comfort food activates the reward center of the brain um, and how oxytocin, what is it, oxytocin in mm-hmm. the interior cingulate cortex regulates empathy-based comforting, but it's, it's a lot more than that. I didn't get to dig as far as I would like to on these subjects. I do plan to continue to learn more about this. But now we have we have an explanation. There's a neurological chemistry activating and interacting that affects how we are comforted by things. Yeah. But we won't go too far into that today in this episode. So that is something I'd like to get further into at a later time. Yeah. But for today, we're actually Sounds... going straight to comfort zones. Okay. I'm really excited to hear about the comfort zones. Yeah, comfort you did. Comfort zones. So I found this interesting. I looked up humans and comfort zones, and I found on Quora a question and answer: Why do humans have a tendency to live in their comfort zone? And I thought it was a little strange, but there was a Chat GPT that gave an explanation, and I thought, well, what would AI say about what human comfort zone is? That's oh dear, <laughs> terrifying but fun. <laughs> And it read, humans have a tendency to seek out familiar and comfortable situations because it is often associated with feelings of safety and security. Additionally, many people have a natural inclination towards routine and predictability, which can lead to a preference for familiar environments. Additionally, it can be more difficult to take risks and try new things, and some people may feel overwhelmed by the uncertainty and potential for failure that comes with stepping out of their comfort zone. I was like, okay, AI, like that's that's a good way to explain some of it, but I do feel like it's missing a lot. So what is the human comfort zone? Well, here's some of the cliches I'm sure we've all heard before. Um, there's a ton about it. The growth, that growth starts outside of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. A comfort zone is a beautiful thing, but nothing, nothing ever grows there. Yeah, I've heard all of those. Yeah. And it it makes you wonder, are these true? Is our comfort zone a bad thing? Are we missing out if we don't get outside of it? And what does it mean to be outside of our comfort zone? And how do we do it without having, pushing ourselves too far and having a panic attack or... Yeah, burning out. Burning out, yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of different trains of thought on comfort zones. And we, we hear a lot of these. It can sound both inspirational, but also can sometimes sound daunting. Yeah. But what I find really interesting... Um, I found some neuro re- neuroscience research that supports the idea that being outside of your comfort zone is good for our brains, which okay. is true. There's there's a Yale research study exploring being comfortable and how it ex- impacts our brains. This study concluded that stability shuts down our brain's learning centers. So feeling uncertain and uncomfortable lights up the learning center of our brain and neural pathways for making new connections. So when we're faced with something new, we're problem solving, we're having to push a little bit out from yeah. where we're used to being. And right. that's where, that's learning. Yeah, That's how our brains are able to push out and open up those pathways. Right. That strikes me as being very logical. It makes a lot of sense. If you, because you know what it makes me think about is autopilot. Yes. When you're in autopilot, you're like totally checked out like your drive home from work it happens to me all the time i'm sure it does to many people but you're not learning anything new you're not super engaged yeah so it makes sense that being a bit outside of that comfort zone where you're in autopilot would put you into more of a engaged and even 
be more open to learning. Yeah. And, it, and more fulfilled, too. Because how many <sighs> times have we... Yeah. How you don't want to be an autopilot all the time. No. Right. No. Well, and how many times have you been driving home from work and your brain edits that out? You don't actually remember driving home. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if anyone else feel, gets that, but there's times where I was like, did I even... I don't remember get, I don't remember my whole drive here. Cause did it, I really just drive home? I yeah. I mean, I'm home, so wow. <laughs> yeah, but you weren't paying attention to anything. Yeah, you were so just true. zoning out and obeying traffic laws, and then you got home. <laughs> right. So with this in mind, we notice our, our brains need a balance of both. Being uncomfortable facilitates an environment for our brains to learn, and being comfortable allows us for processing and recovery. Okay, is that makes what total sense. the study found. So we we approach uncomfortable situations with doubt and fear and anxiety, and moving through these experiences, we teach the brain that we can feel these things and still be okay, resulting in increases in confidence and self esteem. So okay. practicing being uncomfortable protects us from a lot, and it actually it's very healthy for our yeah. brain. We become more resilient with limits. <laughs> okay, within within reason. Within reason. You know, this was interesting because I, I thought to myself as I was reading all this, well, okay, we, if we're always uncomfortable, we keep pushing and pushing. There's a certain point where our brain does need rest. We yeah. need rest. So I found this article from this woman that said, please stop telling me to leave my comfort zone. <laughs> and that. the whole story she goes through how she's in an office environment and how she is just pushing and pushing and she's a go-getter. And she's thinking, life happens outside my comfort zone. But she doesn't balance and she burns out. Mm. She gets to a point where it's more of a danger zone is what they call it. Where you are pushing yourself so far out that now anxiety takes over. And you have to recover. Your body and brain needs rest. And it's going to take longer once you push yourself out into the danger zone. It'll take longer to recover from that rather than realizing okay there's a certain level i push out and then i balance that with with comfort so this is making me think about because you mentioned burnout and anxiety and it sounds to me just because i have generalized anxiety disorder so you know this comes up for me that while being in a certain to a in a certain level of discomfort is healthy once you push into the next level it's like you're nervous system's activating too much. Yes. And you can get stuck in sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, your whole body's in damage control yeah. at that point. Which is fight or flight, people might know it, or there's a few other terms now. Hi hypervigilance. Yeah. So I could, I mean, it takes also logical why it's unhealthy to always be in that state. Yeah. So, so there's, there's the idea of using anxiety to enhance performance, gain traction, in the face of economic deregulation in the 1900s. Oh. Resulting in com competitive pressures. So in 2009, a well-known British management theorist, Alexander White, repeated established wisdom when he wrote that in understanding and managing performance, the key is the management of stress and described anxiety as a tool to assist in performance management. Okay, so put that in layman's terms. <laughs> so... Due to an economic downturn, right, there was this concept that anxiety is going to enhance our performance. So stress out your employees. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Not, Michael Scott. Not a great, not, you know what? Michael Scott's actually the anti that, if you think about it. 
He had uh, movie days. Depends on the day. He uh, he, he was okay. He was know, very stressful, but he also did a lot of play. You know who would have ascribed to this actually once he was manager was Dwight Schrute. So yes, let's be real. Actually, that is true. Um, so anxiety is not a tool. Like once you're in anxiety, that's not that's not great. Discomfort time, is different than anxiety. The only time I would say it's a tool is when you're in a life or death situation. Yes. Yeah. Being yeah. in fight or flight when you're in danger. Is a very healthy tool. But fight or flight is completely inappropriate to ask of somebody within an office environment. Yeah. That you should never be putting your employees through that. Right. So a 2017 paper at the University of Leicester. Leicester? 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 Sorry, guys. (laughs) Okay. So they found that there was no evidence to support this idea. So this this is being championed is this idea that we like if we push and push and anxiety can be used as a tool for productivity within the workplace but there's no there's no evidence on that that's not real that's just that's just trying to make sure that we're making more money right so despite all the evidence to the contrary the notion that stress is good for performance is still being peddled by management textbooks which i thought was yeah it's, it's a bit sad, so it's good to know the difference on this. And just like how the body is optimized within a certain amount of temperature, it is also optimized in a certain balance. Yeah. So In all systems. We yeah. don't thrive in extremes. No. Extremes can happen. Extremes have their place in some, in some ways, but that's not where we're optimized. That's not where we live. Yeah. We should not be living in extremes. So to contrast that... The early 20th century um, developmental psychologist Lev, I do not know how to say Lev Vygotsky. Vygotsky, thank you, calls the zone of proximal development. So it's this conceptual space, which is near the comfort zone. It allows a healthy and gradual growth. Okay. So just similar to how children naturally learn new skills, it's, it's just a little bit outside yeah. of your comfort zone where you still... You have a give and take, an ebb and flow. You you use what you have and push a little bit out. And you are able to be uncomfortable and learn. Put yourself in uncomfortable situations, but not anxiety. Okay. But then you also can balance that with, okay, what did I learn? What did I recover? What do I retain? So it sounds to me like this is a this is a better understanding of the way humans actually function and understanding the zones that we actually have. Yeah. And that if you want to push yourself, you want to aim for the proximal zone, is what you call it. Yeah. So it's called the zone of proximal development. Okay. So educators think about striking the balance between familiar and novel all the time. I also found another article talking about the science behind relentless breakthroughs. So people who are optimizing their breakthroughs are optimizing these high learning moments in their lives and within this they were talking about how there can be about a 50 percent discomfort and it that that changes over time but you shouldn't be completely ever stepping into danger zone danger zone yeah and when you have that balance when you're able to kind of balance back and go back and forth between that that's when your brain is optimizing yeah yeah, and to simplify that down, really for personal growth, it's necessary to take risks. 
and we endure some ego discomfort. We have to be willing to laugh yeah. at ourselves. We have to be willing to not know something. Yeah, that could be really hard to do. Yeah, and it's a, it's necessary to take those risks. But then it's also important to spend time healing and contemplating in a nurturing environment of your comfort zone. Mm. So being aware of your comfort zone and boundaries is a great first step to know how far to step out of that, to learn and push yourself, and then digest what you've just learned. I love that idea of your comfort zone being a nurturing environment. Yes. It's like your home. Your home should be a comfort, comfortable, nurturing environment. But we also have to go out every day yeah. and experience new things and push ourselves. Yeah. But well, we come back, <laughs> come back home, and, and we get nurtured. Exactly. Ideally. So it's a balance of comfort and investing in feeling fulfilled and investing in being uncertain about things until mm. you learn it and then you grow. Yeah. I love that. That is so cool. Yeah. So what does this have to do with the seasons? Okay. I know people are going to be asking. This is this is interesting. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> so that's that goes to the question of how does nature impact our well-being? Mm. And research reveals that environments can increase or reduce our stress. The natural world is so impactful for our complete human experience. So within that, there's changes within nature. And we can take a lot of cues from how nature has these beautiful seasons. In summertime, we have more extremes of we push ourselves. We're a little uncomfortable. We're adventuring. We're doing stuff. We have the energy. The days are longer, at least where we're at. Yeah. To be able to go, 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 go. By the end of the summer, we're pretty tired. And then nature takes a rest. Yeah. It starts slowing down. The life cycle, that go more, it goes more dormant. And I feel like we, can, we take a lot of cues. That's what that cozy culture I was talking about, linking that all the way back. That's what that is. It's us taking cues, being affected by what's around us. But that's also the optimal way for humans to be able to personally grow yeah so this is this is what you're saying yeah fall is a comfort zone yes fall is our comfort in every way (laughs) that's cool i'm glad you think so (laughs) i did not expect i did not expect when you told me you were doing research on human comfort literally i was just like thinking oh uh being cozy and you know blankets and hot tea i might i mean i didn't give it much thought but then when you started going into comfort zones and performance and learning and all this stuff, I mean, wow, like it's really cool. So I'm just excited that you find this also interesting and that hopefully you guys do too, dear listeners. But other than other than that, it's just I love being able to continue to ask questions. Be comfortable with not knowing something and then ask those questions. And sometimes yeah. after your first question, you're still not going to know. So keep asking questions. And you end up with something really cool. Yep. I love that. All right. That's all I have to share about that. How about we go into a small break? And after our break, Jessica is going to talk to us about sweaters. Woo! All right. So jumping into the crazy world of sweaters that I found myself in for the last week. I'm so excited. (laughs) No, nothing too crazy, but um, I got inspired by actually a YouTube video that I watched, and it'll be in our sources, but it was talking all about the famous sweater debate of 2023, Oh, is what I'm calling it, but it was something that Ben Schwartz posted. He's the actor that played John Ralphio on Parks and Rec. 
I love him. If you know, you know. Excellent character. Seems like a pretty cool guy, but who knows. Anyway, he posted an homage to Billy Crystal's character from When Harry Met Sally. And it's this famous photo of him wearing, looking very cozy, and wearing a pair of nice jeans and a white sweater. Fabulous. Yeah. The, the, the best fall outfit. And this innocent photographic homage sparked a debate on, once again, the villain in most stories, Twitter. And <laughs> I put in parentheses, no, I won't call it X. I don't use it. I don't care. Because <laughs> I forgot it was even X until I had to look. I was trying to look up the photo. Oh. And the photo was posted on Twitter. This side-by-side photo. That, That's right. So then it took me to a link, and then the website was all weird, and it said X, and I'm like, what am I on? I did forget that it was called X. Yeah. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot it's X now. But what oh. did they, is it still a tweet then? I don't know. I don't know anything about, I've it's never, I didn't even have a Twitter. I think it's an X. Anyway, <laughs> so before we get more into the photo and the debate that it sparked, let's just focus in on the sweaters that they are wearing and specifically it's a more traditional version of it the one that billy crystal is wearing that sweater is called the Aaron jumper which oh. jumper is what they call sweater in uk so oh, a jumper. yeah a jumper and they uh originate from the Aran islands which are six miles off the west coast of ireland traditionally it was made by the undyed cream colored bonine which is yarn made from sheep's wool and they used to leave it unwashed so that it would still contain the natural sheep lanolin, making the garment water repellent. What? Which was super useful for living in Ireland because it's cold and rainy, but also because on the islands in the Aran Islands, um, fishing has been the primary industry there. So yeah. okay. that's also why you've probably heard these sweaters called fisherman sweaters. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> So a little bit more about um, the sweater itself. Aran knitting is not an ancient craft, like some people would like to believe or some myths say. Um, it was actually invented as recently as the 1890s, early 1900s. And then over the course of the 20th century, it was just a cottage industry. The women on the island would knit these beautiful sweaters just for their families and for the men that were going out to fish. Each sweater would take 40 to 50 hours minimum of work to knit it by hand. So definitely not easy thing to do. So they don't wash the wool? If you... Because it, it doesn't have that... It doesn't have the water-resistant compound in it that... I don't know if that means that you can never wash the wool. I just think that it's when you're creating the yarn. It doesn't go through like a washing process. Oh, okay. Because then the lanolin would get stripped. I don't know how you would care for the yarn after the sweater has been knit. Good question. I'm fascinated. Because yeah, so. I'm what? imagining the smells. We'll ask our next guest. Oh. I bet she'll know. I think she'll know. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> anyway, so basically it started off as just, like I said, a cottage industry. And the fam- just the women on the island were knitting these sweaters. And then they started to try to expand it. The first knitting patterns for these sweaters were published in the 1940s in England, and then shortly thereafter, exports to the United States began in the 1950s, and ever since then, they've been popular in the West, but really worldwide, because they're... They're good sweaters. Good sweaters. They look nice. They're warm. I mean, can't go wrong. But nowadays, 
there's very few sheep. I mean, there's always been few sheep on the Aran Islands, but the industry is so big that not all of these sweaters can be hand knit on the Aran Islands anymore. Most of the modern Aran sweaters are machine knit and they use soft merino wool now. However, there are still Aran sweaters from the 30s and 40s that are displayed at the National Museum of Ireland, I would assume. And they are rightly regarded as a national treasure. So that is the background of the Aran jumper. Oh. Now you know. And now when you see this sweater, which we will post the photo um, for comparison when we post about this episode so everybody will know exactly what kind of sweater we're talking about. But when you see this sweater, now you'll know um, either it's an Aran jumper or it is inspired by Aran jumpers. So we're going into the famous 2023 debate about the differences in the sweaters. And even when I look at the photo, there's such a sharp contrast. You can see how different it is what they're wearing. Yeah. And basically the debate that started on Twitter, this terrible, terrible place, is that everybody said, look how cheap Ben's sweater looks compared to what he's supposed to be paying homage to. And so... Looking at these sweaters, I'll just describe to you what I see. And like you said, it's obvious that they're very different when you look. Yeah. Um, Billy's wearing a very traditional-looking Aran jumper. It's beautifully made. Whereas Ben is wearing a more modern version of it. It's similar color, but it has a slightly different design. But I would say the most obvious thing that jumps out is the yarn sizes of the sweater. Yeah. And that's what makes Ben's sweater look so much smaller and thinner whereas the one that billy is wearing is thicker and people automatically assume that the thicker more lush material and item are the more high quality and expensive whereas that's not necessarily the case and you can't i am i know nothing about this but this is what the internet told me you can't determine the quality of the yarn just by looking at it you really would need to touch and feel it and you need to know what you're looking for there's really actually no saying for... I mean, even though Ben's sweater looks cheaper just because it's a thinner yarn, it probably isn't because he's a Hollywood actor. It's probably yeah. a very expensive sweater. But that kind of leads us into what I really deep dived, which is what happened to our clothes in the last like 50 years. Like I said, this launched a debate about the quality of our clothing with a lot of people saying that the modern sweater that Ben is wearing looks cheap, but people were just ready to generally complain about the quality of clothes and how it's gone down. So why do our clothes suck now? <laughs> that, that's the question. The burning question. So what I found is that the prices of clothing have actually gone down in the last few decades. Really? Which is super counterintuitive because yeah. the prices of everything have gone up. Everything costs so much now. So how can it be that the price of clothing has gone down? And the reason is that the quality has gone down, right? So even more expensive items, like brands that charge hundreds of dollars for a t-shirt, they're not actually good quality. They're just priced highly because they're a symbol of exclusivity. So you're buying brand rather than buying quality. Yeah. Because no matter what, the quality of the clothes have gone down. So there's always going to be... And there always has been super expensive clothes that are mostly just a symbol because there's always a niche of people that are willing to pay the highest price, you Mm -hmm. know, to have that symbol of wealth. And so that's what drives the market. Back in the day, if you didn't have the money to pay for 
you know, the dress of the, of the season or the dress of the decade. You know, we used to have decades where oh, yeah. a certain style instead of one season. Yeah. Um, then you could get a pattern and buy the material and make it yourself. Or you could hire a dressmaker to make oh. it. Oh. So, you know, maybe the poorest of the poor couldn't do that. But at least people with, you know, the average person could. So the average person still had quality clothing available to them. Yeah, which was much more of like a DIY culture almost. That yeah. They would, they would take it into their own hands of, okay, here's the popular silhouette of this decade. Yeah. And that time invested and the money invested to make that piece. Would pay off. Would pay off. For a long time. And you could actually get quality materials at a reasonable price, which is not the case anymore. No. When it comes to buying a finished product off the rack, there's always an assumption that you're getting getting what you pay for. So the more you pay, the better quality. And like we said, nowadays that's just not the case. And really, no clothing on the rack is good quality anymore. So why is this? Now here is my real soapbox. Fast fashion. Um, in other words, having a new coat every winter or a different style of jeans every spring, having this be the new culture that we live in, has contributed to the production quality going down. Because yeah. back in the day, people would buy an item and it would be their coat, their winter coat for two decades. You know, maybe I'm... Yeah, <laughs> which no, to me it sounds, would last a long time. To yeah. me sounds crazy, but like the one video I watched, she said that People used to invest in sweaters or knit them themselves, and that would be their sweater, like, for life. Like, you would repair it, you would, maybe you would, and if it did get ruined, it would be after a couple decades. It wasn't like, every year we buy a new sweater, every year we buy a new coat. Yeah, so everything, that as far as style, it was more timeless. Yes, right, exactly. And there were still, you know, we've always, like you guys discussed with Ariel, we've always had styles and trends. But generally, people kept items for longer. There wasn't this constant consuming of products. That's really a modern problem. Yeah. And, I mean, and we see that now just even with the, the styles of clothes. It feels like it, it does change all of a sudden. Yeah. I mean, for us, like we were told like skinny jeans, skinny jeans. And all of a sudden, we're getting heckled for not wearing wide leg. But yeah. now low rise is coming back and then it's high rise. And it, and. We it's saw, just all over the place. We saw a rise of something, and I think, I don't know if this started before TikTok, but TikTok definitely made it a big deal, and the pandemic had a big effect on this, but microtrends became a thing. Yes. So there's always been trends, but microtrends, I mean, it's it keeps getting worse. You know, yeah. like the last 30 years, it's gotten worse, but then even the last t- 5 to 10, I mean, we have now microtrends, which basically yeah. is something that rises in popularity because it goes viral on TikTok and or you know wherever and everybody's buying it for a couple weeks and everybody wants to post in that item and then after that it's like eh, it's it's over the moment is done we're moving on to the next thing it's just like a little blip it's a blip yeah and it's just barely which, but it's it, driving these companies to produce clothing in that way to feed yeah. that to feed the culture so because of that brands now focus on selling more items at a cheaper price and at lower quality, rather than selling fewer items that cost more and are more well-made. Yeah. So the whole the whole industry has flipped to the opposite focus, basically. And that also, you know, you can't blame what's happened with the industry solely on the consumer and these trends in the culture. You know, um, 
companies have had to pivot and make changes because prices for materials have shot up. They can't afford to pay the prices, so they pivot to cheap materials and making lower quality items. And that's just where we're at. So like I said, the whole idea has flipped on its head. And some reasons include, like I said, a shift in culture, but also manufacturing practices, um, rising costs of labors and materials, um, force company well don't force them but companies choose to cut corners rather than paying more and also the cost of living crisis that we're all experiencing causes most average people to have to spend less on clothing they have to cut their clothing budget yeah so but something's got to give somewhere something's got to give so here we have brands like dun 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 the big bad in my eyes which is shein I was, th- I was wondering if it was going to be Shein. When are we going to talk about Shein? So <laughs> here we go. They create hundreds of different styles seemingly every day, mass produce them, thousands upon thousands of items, and their business model is not built on selling everything they produce. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So rather, they just produce it so cheaply that it doesn't matter to them if they end up with thousands of items that, are, that never get bought or sold. So, Ooh. what happens? What We know that's a bad thing. Yeah, I, I was about to ask, like, what, what do they do with it then? Exactly. They end up in landfills. Oh. Yeah. So, I know that became a bit of a thing recently where people have become more aware of the clothing that is ending up in landfills. And when I first heard about it, I assumed that it was people who were buying these clothes and only wearing them once or twice because they're cheap or because they bought it because of some silly trend. And then tossing them. But the biggest contributors, and this makes sense to me now that you hear about like the way these companies are producing clothes, the biggest contributors are the clothing companies themselves. Mm. Because once the trend passes and they have all this merchandise that never got bought, they'll just dump it in a landfill. Oh, man. So basically creating garbage and then selling it. And if they can't sell it, they... Then it's literally garbage. It's garbage. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So anyways, not to get too far down the depression rabbit hole um (laughs) but i mean i could talk forever about it i feel very passionately about it but here's some statistics um of the 100 billion garments produced every year 92 million tons end up in landfills oh man so this means that the the equivalent of a garbage truck full of clothes ends up on landfill sites every second of the day wow so if this trend continues, the number, the amount of fast fashion waste is expected to soar up 134 million tons a year by the end of the 2020s. Um, so these mountains of clothes in the landfills can be seen from space, from satellites. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's how I first heard about it was there was a little news story about um this mountain of clothes that had been photographed via satellite in somewhere in South America. I forget, but it'll be in my resources. So if we invest into maybe taking a little more time and cultivating or curating more of a, a closet that that has higher quality if we can, or even taking a more DIY take on something. Maybe it yeah. might be expensive at first to invest in something, yeah. but you could be supporting somebody who knits or these companies that are taking this seriously not to yeah. be making these before we completely landfills. before we completely pivot to the positive 
oh, I just need okay, to mention. Sorry. sorry, it's okay. This is my last thing. Um, before we completely pivot to the positive, I just want to say one more depressing thing, which is that because these clothes are now being made with the cheapest materials possible, most of them contain plastic, most of them contain toxins, so they're being dumped in the landfills, and then all those toxins are leaching out and ending up in the water, ending up in the surrounding environment, and eventually the ocean. So it's spreading microplastics everywhere. It's a big big contributor to what we're seeing with the whole earth being polluted. So there are people who are trying to make changes and... um, but the best thing that each of us can do is try to be a little bit more conscious, like you were saying, about where we're buying our clothes. And it's not just about um, the environment, because we're really wasting money when you buy. And, you know, to be fair, sometimes you have to just buy the cheap clothes. Like, yeah. if it's what you can afford, it's better to be clothed. Yeah, if it's, that's just sometimes what we have to do we can't single-handedly change what is going on on a global scale but i will say this whole deep dive really kind of brought me back around and the video that originally inspired me um ended in the place where she was talking all about how to invest in a sweater that will last you a lifetime oh okay And there are companies out there that are selling handmade sweaters they are not cheap at all (laughs) um but i've even started thinking about um trying to invest in one or possibly trying to learn how to knit myself eventually it would be my dream to learn how to make clothes but I think there's little ways that we can try to focus on whether it be thrifting or just buying less but trying to get slightly higher quality there's ways that we can try to like break out of this system of fast fashion yeah so well that's that's exactly it reminds me of what Ariel and I were talking about yeah even in the interview with her is the more we're entering more of an era which is encouraging in this because it's we're having this breakdown of trends in a lot of ways there's a lot of trends out there but not everyone's participating everyone is at a certain point where it's just this wild west and they're realizing you know what this is what works for me this is what i feel comfortable in i've figured out my color season i figured out my what, how my body is shaped and how fabric drapes on me, like yeah. the kibby body types. What's most flattering. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're realizing, I now that I have this, and they're being more intentional with their purchases, which means that they are viewing their choices now as an investment. And that's that's what I, I'm taking away personally from this, is yeah. keep on viewing yourself and viewing your closet as an investment and recognize that, the more we understand and take the time to just be a little more intentional with what we're doing, it has so many benefits to it. Absolutely. And that's been something that for me, like in the last year or so, I say has been a big mental shift because I've been on such a budget for such a long time that I would always focus on just finding the best price. Mm-hmm. And I've gone through this a couple times now where you go out you get yourself what you need these items and then within a year they've fallen apart completely so i'm trying to shift more towards that quality mindset and even if i have to save up a little bit or wait and buy fewer items i'm i'm trying to start doing that and start building like a wardrobe that's timeless and that will last so yeah and you're gonna feel good in it too yeah i'll keep you guys updated i'm still learning what i like and what looks good on me so you know I like the idea of fashion, but the execution is not my friend. (laughs) 
so <laughs> we're in this together one fine day you know this actually really reminds me of speaking about um being intentional with where we're buying yeah. our clothes or just the the quality of our clothes there was a woman i met a while ago who has this company called public habit daniel was did a, a photo shoot for her for some of her uh, social media content and she makes these wonderful beautiful sweaters they're high quality mm. and she works really hard to really reduce waste of any sort she wants to go back to the older way of doing things yeah i love that so we will definitely share her her social medias yeah on she, our she's post. on instagram <laughs> all righty well that was my deep dive on sweaters man that was fascinating i hope so so thank you guys for listening to my deep dive and now we're going to move on to our recipe of the week recipe of the week recipe of the week ding ding (laughs) which is entitled hug in a cup hug in a cup so tell us tilly we made videos for it yes that's our new thing now so all the deep, which I'm excited about because, I mean, I'm going to go back to them when, I, when I'm when i craving one of these recipes. I, I'm just going to go back to our posts and yeah. follow along. So It's exciting stuff. All the details will be in the video, but give us a brief overview of what yeah. the recipes are. You know, the videos have been fun. It's giving me these, like, kind of flashbacks to watching Food Network, and it makes me feel like, because I was a weird kid, and I, instead of watching cartoons when I was little... I would watch Food Network. Well, that's a lie. I would watch Food Network, and then once my program was over, I would have just enough time to catch the end of Blue's Clues. Nice. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. So I was very psyched to be able to start making my own videos and make pretend that I'm having my own cooking show. Yeah. You know, that is eventually where you're going to end up. I don't know. Like, that's your destiny, <laughs> is having a cooking show. I'm just saying. That is so sweet. Whether it's on YouTube or what, but yeah. yeah. I feel like that has to happen at some like point. Like a minute-long cooking show. How nice is that? Sure, why not? Yeah. So we have a recipe for a mug berry crisp. Mm-hmm. So it is a mixed berry crisp. You will need some frozen berries, some spices. We used some Trader Joe's pumpkin spice. Brown sugar. I find that brown sugar has a more in-depth flavor than just using the white sugar. I I think it gives it a more caramely flavor to me. And I personally like that. Yeah. You'll want some cornstarch and oats. We also made taboki and a mug. For those who don't know what that is, it is a Korean spicy rice cake. It's so good. (laughs) In a gochugaru or gochujang type sauce it's a a hot pepper paste we also add green onions um you can add you can add a few different flavors i also did a more of a honey taboki Mm -hmm. so i i it sweetens it up a little bit and i added a little bit of soy sauce for more of an umame yeah and it's definitely a comfort food of mine i lean more towards savory than sweet as far as my preferences so as as far as a mug recipe i was excited to have something like that to sit down and be able to snuggle up with yeah come to think of it i've seen mug recipes before but they're always dessert it's always dessert i don't think i've ever seen like a little and like you were saying these recipes are perfect for when you're so tired you don't feel like cooking or you really just want a little you know a little dessert but 
I'm going to keep that in mind for the future of like that was when you're so exhausted after work and you can't fathom cooking something, just yes. toss something in a mug, savory for a meal and make yourself a quick little snack or even dinner. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It, and actually my inspiration behind these was girl dinner. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, girl dinner. Girl dinner. Because it's just, it, especially if you're just making it for yourself, let's say like maybe your spouse or your mate, whoever you live with, if you have someone that you're living with, already went and got their own food figured out and you're like, okay, like I've just got, just got me. Yeah. Like here's what I can just throw in a mug and microwave. I'm too tired. I <laughs> always, my girl dinner is always cold food. Because if I'm eating girl dinner, it's because I'm too tired to cook, you know? Oh. So I would like the idea of having something that could be, like like Levi's, for example, his girl dinner is ramen. <laughs> you know, ramen just doesn't do it for me. Like, even though it's delicious, it's not filling enough. So it'd be nice for me to have a hot food option for girl dinner because you don't want to eat cold food in the winter. Yeah, and when something homey and something that feels complete yeah, as like a little, like a little like girl dinner meal doesn't have to be complicated complicated yeah you know like you can still get a really homey result from yeah. not a lot of work so those will be posted on the instagram hopefully within a week of the episode coming out so yeah uh look for that and then if you guys make any of the recipes please let us know either you could take a picture of it or at the very least just comment on the post and let yes. us know what you thought of the recipe well guys thanks so much for being here We'll see you at our next coffee date. Until then, stay cozy and go get yourself a sweater. This podcast is produced by Jess and Telly. Music is by Simber. make it still me